Okay, we're in the book of Micah, and we're going through the last chapter tonight, chapter 7. Next week is what they call the costume carnival. That's when the kids come and play games and get candy and have a wild time. And uh, I think we paid $1.98 for all the games. You know. Oh, they go do apples, too? Dunk for apples, yeah. <laughs> they have all... A lot of fun, and uh, so that's next week. So there's no Bible study next week. And then I think there's three more at the end of October and into November, and then that's it for the year as far as Bible study. So we're coming to uh, the end of the year. It's not far away. But now Micah chapter 7, as we wrap up this book called Micah. And when we get to chapter 7, it's a very personal thing. I'm glad it's here. Helps us understand a little bit about Micah as a person. And so uh, he's given us wonderful prophecies about this. The Lord, uh, that we're you know, six or seven hundred years into his future. And now he is going to talk about himself a little bit and how he views the world. And we're going to look at what I call the human condition. It's really what this is. There's not so much prophecy in it, although there are some prophecies in it that uh, look forward to, to uh, what's coming, but it's more about his own self and what he's thinking, and uh, what it's like to be a man of God. That's what it's about, what it's like to be a man of God. Chapter 7, Micah, verse 1, woe is me. That's how you start. <laughs> there you go, woe is me, woe is me. I'm not feeling happy here. For I am as when they have gathered the summer fruits, as the grape gleanings of the vintage, there is no cluster to eat. My soul desired the first right fruit. He said, I'm going to try to describe the way I feel. I feel bad, woe is me. But uh, the way I look at it, he says, is I had my heart set on a nice big cluster of grapes. And I was thinking about nice fresh grapes on a cluster. And I, I went there and there wasn't any clusters there. There was nothing there. We want to pick and satisfy that, what I desire for that sweetness, and it was gone. And so what he's saying is I want first fruits, I want the best there are, and all I get is gleanings. Uh, there's nothing left. There's a grape here and a grape there, and that's all I get. And so uh, my... Description, I feel woe is me, I'm sad, uh, but I am unsatisfied. I am unsatisfied with life. In particular, his own situation that he's about to describe to us. And so he's going to talk about what I'd call the human condition, what things were like when he was 
trying to do God's work and the atmosphere which he worked in. And we've seen some of these things. He's described them before. And now he's going to kind of put a cap on the way life was when he was trying to prophesy and get God's word across. So let's go on to verse 2. The good man is perished out of the earth. He's talking about good men, remember? Uh, Chapter 6, verse 8. What does the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy? He has showed the old man what is good. And what does the Lord require of thee to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with thy God? He said, so there's a good man. What does he do? He walks humbly with God. He loves mercy. The way he treats people is extra special. And he does the right thing. And now he says, that kind of man is perished out of the earth. There are no more good men. All right. So that's kind of a sad thing. No wonder he's kind of sad. There's no good men. I, I say you've got to be careful when we say that. I'm not saying he's wrong, but it has happened before. And you remember that Elijah, the prophet, had a contest with the prophets of Baal, and he won all the contests, called down fire from heaven, and, uh, and then he killed all 400 prophets. And then Queen Jezebel says, you'll be dead tomorrow, mister, messing around with my prophet. And so he ran off, way off into the desert. And when he gets down to Mount Sinai, near Mount Sinai, he says to God, I'm the only one left. I fought and I struggled and there's nobody left but me. And so here I am all by myself. I tried, but I'm the last man. And you remember what God said. He said, I still have 7,000 that have not turned to Baal. And that was a little lesson for Elijah. Elijah, you know, there's people you don't know about. There's people you're not aware of. But I am aware of them, and I've actually counted them. And I know how many there are. I know the faithful people. I know where they are, and I'm watching them. All right, so uh, when he says a good man has perished out of the earth, does it mean that there's absolutely none? No, he feels that way. Uh, There's a few, and not many will say that. Uh, But uh, good men are gone. And there is none upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. They hunt every man his brother with a net. So uh, they're (coughs) out to harm people. There's no good men. They want to hurt people. They are waiting uh, to find an occasion to hurt somebody, doing anything in their power to do that. (coughs) And... uh, he said, uh, they hunt down their own brothers. They hunt their own brothers down. And then he, I like what he says next, verse 3. They that may do evil with both hands earnestly. <laughs> and there you go. Yeah. They want to do wrong. 
They're determined to do wrong. And they grab one hand and say, we'll use two hands. We'll do it with both hands. And then they'll get intense. We're really going to do wrong as much as we can. And so he says they're earnestly desiring to do wrong. They do it with both hands. And then he mentions three people. The prince asketh, the judge asketh for a reward, and the great man, he uttereth his mischievous desires. So the three people in society who should be uh, trustworthy is a prince, of course that's a government person, and the judge, people who are, should be interested in justice, and then he says there's great men, men of means, and he says these three have come together and joined their forces together. And so the courts are off, the government is off, and the people who have joined with them. And he says uh, uh, he uttereth his mischievous desire, so they wrap it up. So the three of them, that's the courts and the government and powerful men have, he said, wrapped it up or taken their three threads and twisted them together into a rope. And as the Bible says, a three-corded rope is hard to break. And so they, these three people who should be trustworthy, who should be in the position they're in because you can trust them, you can't trust them at all. They've joined together and done everything uh, to work together for money, he says. The judge asks us a reward. All right, so they they do it for money. And that that sound a little familiar to you. Powerful people and judges and, and people in government working together to get what they want. Yeah, I'm afraid that the human condition is the same now as it was then. We certainly have uh, forces out there. And one that amazes me is they want to turn all the people loose as soon as they arrest them, and they go out and kill somebody the next day. It's just amazing to me sometimes that they call themselves judges. It's, it's a terrible abuse of power, and that's what they were doing there. They were doing it for their own benefit, doing whatever they wanted. And uh, so he, here's the way he puts it, verse 4, The best of them is a briar, <laughs> and the most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. He says when you're around them, it's nothing but prickly, annoying things. They're briars and thorns. You can't stand being around them. They prick and prick and prick and scratch, and they are just not what they should be. He said, so we do everything to stay away from them because they're uh, hard to be around. They're hard to be around. They're like a a thorn. I like it when he says they're like a briar. (laughs) I just went out today in the woods a little while, and I had these things sticking ants. Come on. It's only plant that big. Why should it be sticking to my pants? Dragging and pulling and you know. That's a, that reminds me of somebody. <laughs> I'm really annoying. 
And that's what he said. He said, it was me. He said, I wanted something to be good. I was hungry for something good, and I just couldn't find it. All I could find was uh, government people and judges and people of means all working together against God. All right? Now, in the second half of verse 4, Says they're sharper than a thorn hedge. The day of thy watchman and thy visitation cometh. Now shall be their perplexity. And that's a great thing he put together. He says, Is the day coming for the watchman? Watchman. And the day coming for the visitation. And when that happens, when that comes over there, you people who have done these things are going to be perplexed. And you're going to wonder what to do. You think you got everything under control, but you don't. You're going to be wondering what to do. And, uh, and so what is the watchman and what is the visitation? Well, Ezekiel... If you turn over to Ezekiel uh, 33, back a few pages to Ezekiel 33. Now, this is a little prophetic, but it's more of a definition. Micah says, there's a day coming of a watchman. And then uh, Ezekiel will use the same phrase, same word, and explain it more so that we can get a good grasp of it. So I'm in Ezekiel 33, verse 7. So thou, O son of man, I have set thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. So Ezekiel is also a watchman. Therefore thou shalt hear the word at my mouth and warn them from me. So that's what a watchman does. A watchman says, I see something happening. I'm looking. I'm watching. And I see something happening. I'm warning you. This is coming. You need to be warned. And when I say to the wicked, O wicked man, thou shalt surely die. If thou dost not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. And so God says to Ezekiel, the watchman, if I tell you, warn those people, don't let them go without a warning. If I tell you that, and you don't do it, then I'm going to require their blood at your hand. Nevertheless, nine, if thou warn the wicked of his way to turn from it, and he do not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. And so it's a person who comes with a warning. There's a warning that God's given. And Micah was one of those people who was a watchman. God said, I set you up as a watchman. Keep your eye open, and I will tell you when they're going to be warned. And so (coughs) these people were warned. They were warned by Micah. Micah comes before Ezekiel. 
as the kings are unfolding, Micah is towards the end of the kingdom of Judah under Hezekiah, the last king he was under. Ezekiel, you understand, is in Babylon. He's a captive in Babylon. He's already seen the fall of Jerusalem. His time is a little later. And so he's a warning man too. So God's always sending warnings to people. That's what God does. I've got a watchman. I've got somebody who's been watching and paying attention. And they're going to warn you. And you need to pay attention to their warning. If they don't warn you, then I'm going to let the price be on their head. So we need to warn people when the time comes if God makes us a watchman. But there's something else, too, that he says here. He says, he also, uh, in verse uh, 4, thy visitation cometh. And that's a word that comes up in a very good place. Luke, Luke's gospel, chapter 19. Luke's gospel, chapter 19. And this is Jesus coming into Jerusalem. He's coming in on Palm Sunday. And as he rides uh, the donkey that he rode in, he comes up over the edge of the Mount of Olives. And all of a sudden, when you do that, you get to a certain point and you can see the whole city of Jerusalem uh, from the top of the Mount of Olives. And he reaches that point, verse 41. Luke 19, 41. When he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hast known, even thou, at least in this day, the things which belong to thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, compass thee round, keep thee in it on every side, and lay thee even with the ground, and the children within thee, they shall not leave on thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, he said, Uh, I came, I had a visit with you. I came as a visitation. And uh, I was here uh, because I was offering you something very special. When a day of visitation came, and that's, of course, when Jesus Christ came to Jerusalem right from the beginning. He shows up there at age 12 talking to the priests, answering questions of the priests of this 12-year-old boy. And of course, he will come back again and again, heal the blind man, heal the lame man at the pool, do various miracles all around Jerusalem. And he said, I was here, and I was kind, and I was good, and all you wanted to do was get rid of me and kill me. I visited you in mercy. I came and you had an opportunity to accept me. And instead, of course, you rejected me. And so the visitation is our opportunity. So the visitation is an opportunity. 
And these people had a visitation. They had an opportunity. They had Micah explain to them what's going to happen. So you had an opportunity. God has given you an opportunity. And God never passes judgment without giving opportunities. That's God. That's God. Right. Well, God didn't listen to me. God always gave you an opportunity. You had a chance. You all have an opportunity to accept and to believe. And you have a moment in your life when he's made it easier. All right? And that's what the visitation is. Jesus comes peacefully into Jerusalem and heals the blind man by the gate. Sends the guy who's blind down to the pool of Siloam. And he walks and he comes seeing. And they say, oh, who do you think you are walking around like that? We don't even know if it's you. And the guy said, remember what he said? Here's what I know. I used to be blind. And now I can see. And it's a wonderful testimony that he gives of the mercy of God. And what do they do? They kill the Son of God. And so they had an opportunity, and it was a rare and wonderful opportunity. He was right there. And that is always the way God treats this human condition. Somebody will warn and say, don't, 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 don't do it. And then somebody comes along, there's an opportunity for you to turn to God and fix what's right. And he said, but you wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. So when he comes and you reject him, then there's perplexity. You know, what are you going to do? Now what are you going to do? You see the perplexity uh, after the death of Christ, you know. And well, we killed him. Now what? Well, we've got to hire somebody to lie and say that they stole the body. We've got a pretty serious problem here. He's not in the grave. What are we going to do now? Well, we'll hire the soldiers and pay them big money to lie and cover it up. So, the nature of the rejection of God is that people become untrustworthy. Verse 5. Treat, trust ye not in a friend. Alright, so you got a friend. Don't trust him. Don't trust him. Keep, uh, put not your confidence in a guide. You got somebody who's used to saying, help, here, let me help you. I'll show you the way to go. Don't trust him. And then he goes even farther. Keep the doors of thy mouth from her that lieth in thy bosom. He said, don't even trust your wife. He said, don't trust your friend. Don't trust the guide. Don't trust your wife. You cannot trust people. You're going to have to learn that you cannot trust people. So what is he saying? We're supposed to all look around at everybody, all our friends, and think, hmm, what are you all about? Well, no, that's not really what he's saying. He's trying to say something else. Let's go on and see verse 6. For the son dishonors the father. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. All right. 
Now, that should ring a little bell. should have a little bell going off in your head saying, haven't I heard that before? And yes, you have in Matthew chapter 10. We get almost a direct quote here from Micah. And some of the commentators say, yeah, this is right from Micah. Mark chapter 10. Yeah, I'm sorry, yeah. Matthew chapter 10. And Jesus is making a comment here. It's very interesting. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 16. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be therefore wise as serpent and harmless as doves, but beware of men. That's the same thing Micah said. He said, don't trust the guy you think is your friend or your guide. He said, I wouldn't even trust your wife. He says, beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, scourge you in their synagogues. You shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, a testimony against them and the Gentile. Now watch verse 21. And brother shall deliver up brother to death. Father the child. Children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And then down to verse uh, 35. I am come to set a man at variance against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. And so what he's saying here, Jesus' message is you're going to suffer certain things. You're going to suffer persecution. I'm sending you out like sheep in a a pack of wolves. Alright? And so here's the thing. Don't don't trust the world. Don't trust the world. He's not saying, and Mike is not saying, don't trust your wife. (laughs) That's not what he's saying. He's saying that in the world out there, there's lots of advice, there's lots of ideas, and Jesus is saying, be careful. I'm sending you out like sheep amongst wolves. And their philosophies and their ideas... If you get them into your head, it's going to be very harmful for you. You're going to have to be able to say, all right, I know what God says, and I know what the world is saying. I'm not following that. I'm not going to do that. God said this. I'm not going to accept the ideas of the world. He says, be careful, Jesus. You're out there in a world that's hostile to you, that's hostile more than that, to God. All right? Don't trust the world. You can get some very prime examples. COVID. Message from Jesus Christ. Don't trust the world. Don't trust them. All right? And a lot of things out there. The way the world handles things. Marriage. Get rid of it. Who needs it? Don't trust it. Don't accept the philosophies of the world. Jesus said, make sure that you're safe. 
because it'll get so close that the, the father will be against the child and the mother will be against the daughter and the in-law against the in-law. And it's going to get like that. And so you're going to have to learn not to put your confidence in the way the world thinks. And we are inundated today by the way the world thinks. And you really got to be sharp and on top of it to handle it. It's very easy to get swept away in what the world thinks. And if you do, Jesus is warning, just like Micah, he's warning here, don't be surprised. Don't trust these people. The world is going to harm you, and you need to be careful, and it can get very close. And so uh, don't accept that philosophy. Uh, Remember what God says. Do what God says, and make sure you know the difference. Make sure you can tell it. And I think the churches swallow it. I'm sure the churches swallow what the world thinks and try to pattern their services to meet the demands of what the world likes. The world likes certain things. You know, that's what we'll have. We'll, we'll make sure that, the, and I heard it. Pastors told me, we're going to do things to make the young people happy. I'm not here to make young people happy. I'm here to help them be right and teach them what's right. And then hopefully they'll be happy in a more true, valuable way. They're not here to embrace what they learned out in the world. And they say, yeah, we'll give you the same. Come on in. No, that's not what it's about. Jesus warned against it. And Micah back here says, you've got to be careful in this world. So he's got the answer here back in Micah 7, verse 7. Therefore, because you can't trust people out in the world, I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation, and my God will hear me. All right, there he's got it. Just what we said. He said, I'm going to look to God. I'm going to find out what God wants. I'm going to do what God has done. I'm going to make sure I keep that my goal. And I will wait for the God of my salvation. Patience is a great thing. We talked about it Sunday with David's prayer. He said, be patient. That's a very valuable thing. Wait for God and be patient with God. Sometimes we look at the world and we say, it's got to be fixed now. Or where are we going? Well, let's be patient with God. What are we going to do? We're going to do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. But we're going to be patient with things as they're going out there. All right. He said, now my God will hear me. Verse 8, rejoice not against me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. There you go. <laughs> he said, I may make a big goof up, but God will help me. God will help me if I fall. Uh, when I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. So when I seem like I don't know what's going on, God is a light. He lights, what does the Bible say? Thy word is what a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We have ways we can go and God will bring light to our path. Now, 
Here's where he's a real man. This is why I admire him. Verse 9. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. This guy's got it together. He says, you know, sometimes God's sick of me, <laughs> Micah said, and sometimes God is indignant. Why, Micah, come on. What'd you do that for? What made you do that? Didn't you know better than that? And he says, when God feels that way, I, have, I, I will take it. I'll take it because I sinned. I did wrong. It was me that made him indignant because of what I did that was wrong. I like a man who talks like that. Until he plead my cause and execute judgment for me, he will bring me forth to the light and I shall behold his righteousness. So when I feel the condemnation, God says, you knew better than to do that. You knew better. He says, you're right, and I'm sorry. But... He's going to plead my cause and execute judgment for me. So God, when we do wrong, will also stand up and say, I'm here to be on his side. I'll be his advocate. I'll see that he's forgiven. And that's a wonderful thing. So it's a very truthful uh, verse as he talks about his own situation. He started out, woe is me. I'm disappointed. And God says, well, you know, you, you haven't been perfect. <laughs> God says that to all of us, doesn't he? You haven't been perfect, have you? You, know, you haven't been perfect. And he said, but God's going to plead my case. And that's a wonderful feeling that he had. Then, verse 10, she that is mine enemy shall see it. Shame shall cover her, which has said to me, where is the Lord thy God? Mine eyes shall behold her, and she shall be trodden down as the mire of the streets. The main thing that these, all these no good men hurt each other, hunt each other, uh, all these people did was to say, all right, where is your God anyway? You talk about your God, where is he? Come on, show me what he can do. And he said, all of a sudden, they're going to go, whoop, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have said that. Because God's going to say, here, here I am. And one of the most famous instances of history uh, is uh, in Egypt. All right? And when... uh, Moses came in and said, God said, let my people go. Pharaoh made that most famous statement. He says, who is God that I should listen to him? I gotta listen to God. <laughs> I'm Pharaoh, and you're little old Moses. And you're only here because I let you be here because you murdered an Egyptian you should be gotten rid of. Well, I'll leave you stay here, but uh, you better believe I'm not listening to your God. And boy, did he regret that. <laughs> and he says, when people come up and say, so where's your God? I'm waiting. I'm patiently waiting. And when he shows up, you'll see. You'll see. 
11. And that day thy walls are to be built, and that day the decree be far removed. That day also he shall come even to thee from Assyria, from the fortified cities, from the fortress even to the river, from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. So he says what's going to happen is that Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt. You who mock God, 70 years after the captivity comes, they're going to come and they're going to build the walls up. And the decree shall be far removed. The decree was destroy Jerusalem and let it never be rebuilt again. That rule went out the window and God said we're building Jerusalem again. And so they built it up. And that day he should come to the people are going to come from the north, from Assyria, from four to five cities, uh, from fortresses even to the river, sea to sea and mountain to mountain. And mountain represents like as far as you can go without, uh, without being held back. And so people are going to go as far as they can go and return back to Jerusalem, all right? When they get there, verse 13, notwithstanding the land shall be desolate because of them that dwelt therein for the fruit of their doings. When they get back to Jerusalem, it's a mess. And the book of Nehemiah describes what a mess it was. The walls were all just torn, nothing but rubble and dust. And also the book of Ezra, they got there and (laughs) Whoa, we got a job on our hands to rebuild this. All right, that was the result of what the people did before. But now they're coming back. People are going to come back to Jerusalem. It's going to be rebuilt. Verse 14. Feed thy people with thy rod, the flock of thine heritage, which dwelleth solitarily in the wood. In the midst of Carmel, let them feed in Bashan and Gilead, as in the days of old. All right, so God's going to step up. He's going to feed the people. All right. He's going to begin to, as the people come back, he's going to step in like a shepherd and take care of them. He's got a rod. It's a shepherd's tool. And he's going to deal with the flock. He said the flock was like out in the woods, which is not a good place for flocks to be. He said, they're going to come back and going to be like they was in Bashan and Gilead. Across the Jordan River was huge, huge pa- passages of grass. Piles and piles and piles of perfect grass for sheep. And when they came to go into the promised land, they said, this is awful good land. We'd sure like to have this. And Gilead was over there, and that was beautiful grassland. And a couple tribes stayed over there who had a lot of sheep. And he says, it's going to be like that. They're going to be just great fields for you to eat. God's going to feed you the best that he has. 15, according to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt, will I show unto him marvelous things. Now, he says, I'm going to tell you what. God's going to come back. You ask where our God is. Well, here's where he is, right? He's going to come back and he's going to feed the flock. He's going to feed the flock. And then he says, there's going to be miracles. How many? Well, if you go back in history, the first great time of miracles is when the children of Israel come out, uh, Israel come out of Egypt. There's ten plagues on the land which are miraculous in themselves. 
everything from the fish dying in the river, frogs coming out of the river, lice on everybody, uh, uh, the, the, the locusts come, uh, the sun turns black, all the things that happen, the river turns into blood, are miraculous interventions of God. There's ten of them against the nation of Egypt. And then he says, get those people out of here right now. And of course, the last plague is death. Death comes to the firstborn of everything in Egypt. <coughs> and, and old Pharaoh's, get them people out of here right now. And they chase him over to the Red Sea. We change your mind, you're coming home. No, you're not. <laughs> There's a cloud. And it comes between the Egyptian army and the Israelites. It's a big, huge cloud fills the sky. And on the one side towards Egypt, it's black as night. And on the other side, it's flaming fire. And it lights up the Red Sea. And Moses holds his rod over the sea. And it opens up. And they all cross on dry ground. Miracle number one. They get to the other side, and God pulls the clouds up. The Egyptians say, come on, let's get them. Go into the Red Sea. And they're whoosh, all drowned in the Red Sea. Miracle number two. What are we going to eat today? Man, it comes out of heaven. Miracle number three. We're out of water. Hit the rock. Hit the rock. Miracle number four. And it goes on and on and on. And so we have, in that time frame, one of the largest times of miracles in history until Jesus. Now, there were other miracle makers. Elijah did some miracles, raised the dead. Elisha did twice as many miracles. That's what he prayed for. And uh, so we had a few places in between where faithful men did miracles. And, of course, you come to Jesus and... It's way more than anything ever in history. And that's what he says here. It's going to come a time, just like Egypt, when I was doing miracles every day. You're going to see miracles like you have never seen before. And when you read the Bible, it's one of the most convincing parts of the Bible is Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Why? Because Jesus did what nobody else could do. He walked on the water. All right. He raised the dead. He healed the eyes of people who had never seen in their lifetime. Uh, he walked uh, across the sea. Uh, he fed 5,000 out of it. Just miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And we stand back when we read the gospel and we say, There's nothing like it. Nothing. Who in the world can do that but Jesus? So he says, I'm going to show there's coming a day when you thought Egypt was a lot of miracle. Well, we're going to show that that's nothing. Watch this. Here comes Jesus. And whoa, very overwhelming what he does. Verse 16, the nation shall see and be confounded at all their might. They shall lay their hand upon their mouth, and their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall move out of their holes like worms of the earth. <laughs> they shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of thee. Right. They're going to see what God can do. Remember the Philippian jailer. And uh, 
Paul and Silas are singing at midnight, having a, having a worship service in the stocks. And there comes a, an earthquake and all the locks break and everything, buddy, is free. And the guy comes running in. He says, tell me, tell me, tell me about God. Tell me what I got to do to be saved. They're afraid. He says, they're coming like a worm out of the hole. <laughs> get, get me out of here. I'm in trouble. Get me out. And it happens all through the Bible. And it, as far as I'm concerned, it still happens today. Some people are like a, a worm in a hole, the way he puts it. They can't see anything. They don't know what's going on. And then they come out, and there it is. They can see there's God. There's God. He said, they're going to lick the dust like a serpent, they're going to put their hand on their mouth. See, they, they've been doing what? Well, where's your God? You say, where's God? Where's God? You're going to ever say that again. We saw now who God is. And we know he's not to be trifled with. All right? So, <clears throat> that's a very interesting perception that he gives. God's feeding the flock. Jesus comes and teaches us. And then he does enough miracles so that nobody can ever, ever, ever deny who he is truthfully. Nobody can do that. Nobody can take nothing and turn it into something like he did when he broke bread. We have the laws of science say matter can neither be created or destroyed. Oh, yeah? Watch him. He can do it. You can't do it. I can't do it. Scientists can't do it, but he could just take that piece of bread and break it and break it and break it and break it. Amazing. Just astonishing. And when they're done, everybody's full and there's 12 baskets left. Don't tell me he can't do it. He can do anything he wants. And so uh, these, this attitude, he says, I'm feeling uh, the human condition is horrible. It's okay. Along comes Jesus, and he's going <laughs> to make them lick the dust like a serpent, shut their, mm, shut their mouth, and come out like a worm out of a hole, and they shall fear God. Because here's the great thing, another great passage from Micah, verse 18. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity, passes by the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. There's a guy that knows about God. God will pardon our sin, and he passes by transgression. We don't. We save it. <laughs> Somebody sinned, and I'm never going to forget it. I got it right here. I keep it when I need it. If you sin against me, and I'll never forget. No, that's not God. He says he passes by transgression. All right? And he doesn't keep his anger. He said, well, God's got a right to be angry. He does, but he's not. He wants to forgive and he wants it so much that he'll take your sins and get rid of them. And he'll talk about that in a minute. And he won't be angry. He delights in mercy. So I want to, I want to be good to you. I want to do something nice for you. That's God. 
I understand who God is. He wants to be merciful to you. That's his desire. If you understand God, you get it. All right? He wants to love you. He wants to show that he loves you. And so uh, when we, as, as Micah said, I bear the indignation of the Lord because I sinned. He said, but you know, God, he just kind of lets it go. Let's it go. And you'd think he'd be angry, and he's not. And when I go talk to him, he's not angry. I, 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 I'm stunned at that myself. I, I wish I could do that. I wish I had that kind of thing in my own heart. Uh, he says he doesn't stay angry. He delights in mercy. Verse 19, he will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He'll subdue our iniquities. He'll help us to get rid of it. And thou will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. There's what we've been singing, you know. Kids have been singing as they're little kids. Roll away every burden of my heart, roll away, right? Every sin had to go. And wide, wide is the ocean. High as the heavens above, deep as the deepest sea is my Savior's love. And he's going to take our sins and throw them in the ocean and they get way down the bottom somewhere and never bring them up again. And that's awful fortunate for you and me, my friend. And he doesn't intend to bring them up again. He said, I buried them. I buried them. I put them out of sight, out of mind. I changed my attitude. I'm not angry at you and your sins are gone. As far as the east, the Bible says, is from the west. How far is that? That's infinitely far. Infinitely far. Your sins are separated from you. Hallelujah for that, I'll tell you. God said, I'll, I'll wash it all away Throw them in the bottom of the deepest sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob, the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. The truth to Jacob was, um, Jacob had this wonderful quality where God came and he said, I'm come, here I am. And he jumped on him. <laughs> he jumped on him. And he wouldn't let him go. And he wrestled and said all night with God. And God said, come on, stop. He said, I'm not letting you go. Quit it, quit it. I'm not letting you go. And finally God reached down and put his hip out of joint. So he couldn't keep dragging on him the rest of the whole next day. And he said, I'll tell you what. I like your spirit. I will not let you go until you bless me. And so he said, I'm going to perform that kind of attitude to people who love God and they're determined to get their hands on God's blessing. I want it. I want God's blessing more than anything else. He says, just remember old Jacob laying down there in the dust with his hip out of joint. And God said, good show. Good show. I'm going to change your name. I used to call you Jacob. I'm going to call you Israel. That's God is yours. You're prince with God. That's who we want to be, right? Do you want to be a prince with God? 
And you go for what he offers and don't ever let go. And then it said, and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn to our fathers from the days of old. What was Abraham's mercy? Says, Abraham, look up. What do you see? Stars, count them. Can't. Take a guess. I am way more than I can count. Way more than my mind can conceive of. Yeah, that's what's going to be to you, your family, your blessing. I'm going to give that to you. And how much does it sand on the seashore? I, I can't count that. That's right. That's what I'm going to do for you. More than you can count, more than you can think of. And a larger number than your mind can comprehend is what God wants to do for you. That sounds a pretty good way to end the book, isn't it? Huh? Mm-hmm. And God's going to forgive us and delight in us and get rid of our sins in the bottom deepest sea, not remember them anymore, not hold them over our head, say, I'm never going to forget. What does God say? I got plans for you. You really want me? You want me? Do you want me? Then here's the promise. As much as the sand is in the sea, as much as the stars are in the sky, that's what I'm promising. You can have all you want and more. All right? Question, have you got enough yet? Nope, ain't got enough yet. We're going to keep digging and keep hunting and keep grabbing and keep scraping and keep saying, God, I want some more. I want more. And as long as you keep saying that, you got Micah's frame of mind here. He said, Jesus did all those miracles and freely, freely gave himself when he visited, when he made a visitation to earth as your opportunity. Now you got an opportunity now to get a hold of God and do it. Well, I got to stop because I could go for another hour. See? Because it's good stuff. Old Micah did all right, didn't he? This little fellow there, kind of hidden in the back, we never paid any attention to. And he kind of knew what he was talking about, I'd say. And so uh, I hope you enjoyed Micah. Thank you.